Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, what are the duties of the Speaker of the House of Representatives? My guest is Paul Ryan. He was the 54th Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. He was in office from October 2015 to January 2019, and he was the youngest Speaker in nearly 150 years. Prior to becoming Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan served as the Chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and he also served as the chairman of the House Budget Committee. In 2012, he was selected to serve as Governor Mitt Romney's vice presidential nominee. Paul was first elected to Congress at age 28 and represented Wisconsin's first district for two decades. So who better to ask than Paul Ryan about what the duties of the Speaker of the House of Representatives are? Speaker Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Kevin, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. The U.S. Constitution's Article 1 states, the House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers. How does the House pick a speaker these days? Uh, the way it works is each, the, the majority party in their conference, we call the Republican um, body of the conference, the Democrats call theirs the caucus. In this case today, actually yesterday specifically, the House Republican Conference will have a vote as to who they nominate for speaker. That's a plurality vote. You know, the, the person who gets the majority of the votes wins. Kevin McCarthy won that. Then then that means he is to be presented uh, to the full House on January 3rd when a new session is sworn in. And he has to get or she, in, in Nancy's case, has to get 218 votes. So the Democrat caucus, if Nancy stays, they'll probably nominate her. If not, I don't know, Hakeem Jeffries or somebody like that. They'll vote on who they nominate to be the speaker. And then the majority party uh, or the majority vote winner wins a majority vote, 218 votes on the House floor when the new session is sworn in. Then that person swears in. That person is sworn in by the, the, the dean of the House, the longest serving member. And then that speaker is the newly installed speaker for that new session of Congress. Then that person swears in all of Congress. And that's how it gets started. All right. Excellent. Now, the Constitution, as I noted, says the House shall have a speaker, but it doesn't provide a full job description. It doesn't describe much of it, the job at all. In the earliest days of the Republic, the speaker's duty primarily was to preside over the chamber, to be the guy who runs the meeting. But times have sure changed. These days, what are the duties and responsibilities of the speaker? Yeah, they're kind of endless and infinite in some ways. Uh, it's definitely not like it was in the old days. It's a bigger Congress. There are more states when they than they envisioned. And the government does so many more things than it used to do back when, you know, the first Congresses. So you're basically the chief executive officer of the legislative branch. You 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 oversee the entire legislative branch. So technically, you have something like 12,500 employees. You're like kind of a mayor of the place, of, of the legislative branch. You know, the legislative council, the law enforcement agency, the power plant, the janitors, blah, 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 blah. 
And you have deputies that run all of that that you appoint, the architect of the Capitol, the sergeant of arms. So there's an administrative side of being Speaker of the House that most people aren't familiar with. And that is you're, that, you're the, the head of the, the legislative branch. As far as the, the legislature works in the House itself, you um, basically control the flow of legislation. You oversee your party's selection of memberships of committees, chairmanships of committees, and through your leadership team, you determine, you know, who does what, where, when, and how, more or less, which is you determine what bills get scheduled to the floor. You work with the committee chairman to make sure that they get their bills to the floor. And then you set the, the floor schedule. And through the rules committee, which is controlled by the speaker, you determine the way in which debate occurs, uh, whether there are amendments to be made in order. What kind of a rule? Is it an open rule where any amendment can be made in order? Or is it a structured rule where only certain kinds of amendments can be made in order? And by controlling the, the debate, you can also kind of control the outcome of that debate by by virtue of what what changes you may or may not allow to happen to, to the legislation. So you're a big traffic cop. It's basically like an air traffic controller where you are you're you're doing the ground control, which is the committees and what are they doing and when are they doing what they do. And then you're doing the air traffic control, what bills go to the floor, what bills get passed. And then obviously you have to negotiate with the Senate when they have legislation. So you you appoint the negotiators in conference committees to negotiate reconciling legislation with the Senate. And sometimes that, that bubbles up to you and you're the primary negotiator with the Senate, which then you obviously work on getting the White House lined up to, to pass something. So you you basically operate negotiations, House to Senate, uh, Congress to the presidency uh, and how the House curates and, and builds this legislation. So that's the legislative side of it. And then. In the modern era, because you're sort of the head of your party for your for your for your body, for the House Republicans, in my case, or House Democrats and say in Pelosi's case, you're probably the top fundraiser for the party. So you're you're a political person as well. So when you're not in the Capitol legislating and managing the legislative process or the legislative branch, you're out fundraising for your party to make sure that members have the resources to run their campaigns. So it's 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 kind of a dual job, a political job. It's actually three things, a political job, a managerial ministerial job, and then it's a legislative job. Yeah. And I guess implicit in what you're describing is that presumably as a speaker, have to spend a lot of your time bargaining amongst the factions within the party because there's always intra-party disagreement. Every day. I'm kind of a process type person. I like to have sort of a you know, a known schedule. I like to have procedures and processes in place. I'm a big metric driven person. So I liked having sort of a week where I sort of, you know, had a, I had a method to my week and um, we would start at the beginning of the week with a conference with all of our members. Um, every morning would be with my leadership team meeting with what the day is going to look like, what the week looks like, what the long term looks like. And um, on Wednesdays, I would have lunch with the various heads of the various factions in, in, in the House Republican Conference. So I stayed very close with the leads of all the various factions, the Tuesday group, the study committee, the Freedom Caucus, and people in between. And I'd rotate various people in so that I had constant lines of communication with the various factions in, in, in our conference. So and, and in between those as well. So that sort of you had really good lines of communication because there are there's a big diaspora of different types of views and and temperaments in in just the House Republican conference. And so the key to me was constant communication, but early on a, a jointly assembled agenda where we all collaborated and worked on a 
creating an agenda that we believed in, that we usually assembled in our retreats or in different you know processes, that then we would go effectuate and execute our agenda. And while we were effectuating our agenda, constant communication to make sure everyone was playing their role and getting constant feedback and input from people. And it's sort of a consensus-driven process that you have to drive. It is not a dictatorial role. People think the speaker just dictates, not at all. It's You have to forge and bring consensus to get people to you know unify on a common cause so that you can pass legislation because not everything's going to be bipartisan. Some of it's going to be partisan. Tax reform is a good example of, in my case. Uh, so that's the kind of day-to-day thing you do. And you have to manage all of these coalitions. 200 years ago, 100 years ago, well, even before television became common in the United States, uh, speakers of the House were relatively unknown to yeah. 99% of America. That too has changed. Is communicating with the public to be the voice of the majority of the House, does that also consume a lot of time? For it does. Uh, yeah, you do two press conferences each week as Speaker of the House, one at the beginning of the week, one at the end of the week. So it's just open for press to you know kind of shoot at you and ask you questions. But then you have a lot of strategic communication in between, which is pretty much TV, uh, radio, and, and print, but mostly a lot of TV interviews. I think one of the reasons... I actually didn't look for the job. It sort of found me. Um, I don't know if you know the story well, but John Boehner left under, you know, circumstances um, because the Freedom Caucus more or less kicked him out. I, I don't want to say it that way, but he he left because the Freedom Caucus was going to invoke this motion to vacate, and he left to spare the members of that vote. Um, the next guy in line, who is now the next guy in line, Kevin McCarthy, at that time didn't have the votes to get it. And so the consensus came to sort of me to do it. I was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee at the time. And I think one of the reasons I became the consensus candidate that all the factions in Congress agreed to me was partly because I was a policy guy and a policymaker, and they agreed with the policies that I had been pushing through the budget and, and Ways and Means Committees, but also because I had already had a stint at the national political level running for vice president with Mitt Romney. You know, I'd already went through the gauntlet. I already got shot at a thousand times by the national media. I already sort of knew how to handle and have the thick skin for national media exposure. And that was, you know, considered a key part of the job. That is today a key part of the job. You've got to be able to handle a national media exposure and how to handle and, and operate in that environment. That's not the old days. That is definitely today, though, how you do it. I don't think Tip O'Neill was necessarily you know, the most charismatic TV guy. And so speakers like that, and that was fairly recent history. Go back, you know, to years and years and years. They didn't do that. Today, the speaker is also a very much of a communications job. That's an awful lot of responsibilities, which amounts to an extremely heavy, heavy load. Who helps the speaker get all those things done? Various members of Congress, staff, yeah, your, your who staff. Can you rely on? <laughs> yeah, your staff. I mean, you have a pretty sizable staff. Uh, my life has been always planned in 15-minute increments. It was like that as speaker. Um, you, you basically try to balance your time and your chief of staff helps you design your schedule, design your time. And then you have a whole bunch of people on your staff that help you organize your times, make sure that the meetings you have are very productive meetings and to try and curate, you know, resolutions to whatever problem you're trying to solve before the meeting happens. So that when you get a meeting, you can more or less finish the job of solving a problem, getting to a decision, executing something, um, some kind of a mission or something like that. So basically you have to have a lot of staff, and then because of the way now there's different leadership styles in the speaker, for instance, uh, Nancy really liked consolidating power, keeping in the speaker's office. I, I actually recoiled against that. I think the speaker, frankly, the modern speaker has far too much power. 
So my goal was to try and decentralize power as best and as much as I could. And, and the reason I felt that way is because I was a committee chairman who believed that I and my fellow committee members were spending all of our times on the issues in our jurisdiction. And therefore, we should be writing the policy in that area, not somebody who maybe thinks, you know, a half hour a week on this issue and up in leadership, but the committee process. So my goal was always to really push power and responsibility and frankly, communications out to the committees where the specialists actually did the job. Um, that's really kind of the opposite of the way, you know, the Pelosi Congress runs. And I'm, I have every belief that Kevin McCarthy will do the same thing. He'll decentralize power, re-empower the committees. But having said all of that, as speaker, because you command so much attention, you have to also communicate what those committees are producing. You have to communicate your party's vision and views, where they're going, and, and the various policy nuances that are in between. But the key to me in, in, in governing the place successfully, more or less as the founders intended, is to decentralize power, equip the committees with the power um, and, and the agency to formulate you know, the policy in their areas of jurisdiction because they're the experts. They're the ones who spend day in, day out, combing through CRS reports, GAO you know, reports, IG audits, and all of the rest. They're the ones that really should be setting the policy. And that, to me, is the way Congress ought to be run. Yes, yes. The uh, process over the last 50 years where so much power has been traded up to the speaker, uh, arguably it's reached its apex. And it has some it has some benefits, you know, they craft a bill behind closed doors and they put it in front of folks and they voted up or down. But at the same time, everybody seems to be miserable because they realize yeah, I, that as a legislator, they've traded away the essence of their job. Yeah, because I guess in some people places, people don't want the responsibility of, of the consequence or for taking responsibility for the choices you've made. But in a lot of it, I think it's just the consolidation of power has has really accrued to the speakership. I don't like that, frankly. I didn't like it then. And I don't like it now. Um, I think a lot of it comes from the way the budget process has been basically broken. In order to address this, one of the things I got in agreement with in one of our omnibus appropriation bills was a bicameral committee on budget process reform. I put Steve Womack in charge of it for the House. So House and Senate, bipartisan to get us to a, a new budget process where we would decentralize power and have the, the budget committee and the appropriation committees actually write their bills and negotiate their bills and pass separate bills. Now, that WOMAC committee produced a great report, biennial budgeting and different way of doing the budget, only to be basically killed by the Democrats. Because I think there are people, I think Chuck and Nancy, no offense to them, but they like consolidating power. Um, they like four corners deals. Four corner deals are the Speaker and the Minority Leader of the House, the Majority Leader and the Minority Leader of the Senate, the four of them and their staffs basically write a bill, I don't even think I have room on the screen to show, three feet thick, that funds all of discretionary spending, well over a trillion dollars annually, and that is you know, put together more or less by the Appropriations Committee, but molded and negotiating by those four people and their staffs. It is not how government should work. It gives you far too much power in the Speakership I made lots of decisions. Frankly, I, you know, I think I'm a smart guy. I've been around and I, I, I try to use good ethics and principles, but I made so many decisions I frankly shouldn't have been making in, in the design of these bills and negotiating these things that the committees or jurisdiction should be having that responsibility, making those decisions. And so that's one of the things that that's one of those unfinished businesses that I left um, not completing, trying to get it done with this bicameral committee, but it's going to have to be bipartisan. And, and, and unfortunately, I think Democrats, you know, whether it's because they're collectivists by nature or because they like consolidating power, don't want to participate in, in opening up Congress 
decentralizing its power and empowering rank and file members in the committee process to do its job, which I think if you do, you're going to get a better product. It's going to be more clear, accountable and transparent government. Um, but that is not what we have today. But it, it clearly takes both parties and both houses to agree on the solution to, on how to fix that. You spent time as a representative. You spent time chairing a committee. You then spent time as speaker. And now you've had some time away from the chamber. Drawing on that experience, drawing on your wisdom, if you had one piece of advice for an incoming speaker, what would it be? Decentralize the power, open the place up. Not every outcome you can control or predict, that's okay. That's that's the sloppiness of, of a republic in the way it should be. So just decentralize the power and restore the institution. The, the, the institution has been um, attributed away to the executive branch. Part of that's the progressive agenda. Part of that's just, you know, power consolidation. But rebuild the institution of the legislative branch. And the best way to do that is to empower the members um, and decentralize its power within the institution. But get the power of the legislative branch back. All right. Speaker Paul Ryan, thank you for helping us better understand the responsibilities of the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Good to be with you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jae-hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.